Hello, welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. I'm Dan Chapa, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Turton Fan. How are you doing, Turton Fan? Doing great. Glad to be on with you. Likewise, yeah, as always. Although this is a much more serious subject than we, well, we, we, we uh, wrestle with the tough issues, but this is a really tough issue in terms of um, responding to a video that we've both come across on Sola Scriptura and criticisms or Sola Scriptura are fair game. We enjoy responding to them and analyzing any arguments and trying to uh, take them apart. But in this case, there's an argument that there's a, a link and a connection between Sola Scriptura and slavery. And obviously slavery is a very sensitive and touchy subject. R racism, racism in America is a very touchy subject. It impacts uh, so many people in so many different ways. And I just want to, uh, for starters, put a caveat out there. This is gonna be a tougher discussion than some of the others. So if you, um, we understand if you want to pass on this discussion, if you don't want uh, to deal with an upsetting subject, we're going to be as careful and as circumspect as we can in dealing with this in the right way. But um, it needs to be addressed because the accusation is out there that solo scriptura leads to racism and slavery. All right. Yes, I echo everything you just said. And, uh, you know, we do our best to try to honor God's word we realize that this is a, a subject that's very sensitive for people. So uh, without further ado, let me change the format here. So the background of this, by the way, is a uh, public, uh, public domain image of a painting of the argument over liberty of conscience from Westminster Assembly. So. That, that's not an endorsement of their view or anything else by either Dan or myself. But in any event, I think we probably do pretty much agree with what they end up saying. The, we also don't endorse the Catholic Answers video, Catholic Answers video entitled How Bible Alone Allowed Slavery. I don't know if we should leave that ticker on there or take it off. But, uh, this, is, this is what we're reviewing. Um, hopefully, no. Well, we're not re reviewing this live either, I suppose you should point out. So you won't hear any comments from viewers during the video. Uh, any, any other intros? Um, no, let's go, let's go ahead, uh, right on in. Here we go. Okay. Let's start with, with um, racism and the actual history of racism over the last 500 years, because Sola Scriptura is 500 years old. Uh, well, it's 505 years old, I think, this year. Uh, any, any comments on that? Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, I'll, I'll let it play out a little bit more before I start diving in. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's obvious, obviously framing the issue just to, it, they're cutting it off exactly where they want to frame it. So we'll get, we'll get into why that's important here in, in just a few minutes, but uh, it's, it's an obvious framing issue. Uh, what about yourself? Initial thoughts? Uh, from my standpoint, they're choosing the, the number that they've picked there is partly convenient for them because it's 1517 is the date of Luther nailing the 95 theses. And that is the typical, one of the typical dates for the start of the Protestant Reformation. But the idea, I hotly dispute the idea that Sola Scriptura was only innovated by Luther or that it didn't exist before then. I'm I can and have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with various Roman Catholic apologists on the question of 
Sola Scriptura in the Church Fathers, and I'd be glad to do it again. David King and William Webster have an excellent trilogy of books that discuss that very topic, a copy of which I think is on the wall behind me here somewhere. I'm not sure if it's in, in frame of the video or not. But anyway, uh, like I said, let's get into the actual subject at hand. And I think you're right. There's a reason why they wanted to pick only the 500 years and not go back farther. So um, uh, the, we've had a lot of racial problems in the West in the last 500 years. So tell me about how that's involved with Sola Scriptura. So obviously, Catholic Answers doesn't endorse this. It's only flashing up on the screen because we're going through the video to comment the fair use of Catholic Answers video material. Sure. So at the age of exploration, which coincided quite closely with the Reformation, right? You've got uh, people traveling around the world, um, looking for money, starting to sell people. I mean, America, um, I'll jump ahead a little bit to the thesis of the book, but in America, I think you have almost the distilled version of what Sola Scriptura like, looks like morally because it was so Protestant in its founding, right? Yeah, you we did, are. So, Yeah, okay. So, you know, if you just put together a timeline here, right? Uh, Columbus, uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? So this is before Luther um, that Columbus discovered America. And when they did, it was mostly Spain and Portugal, but uh, Spain started to come over and they started to enslave the native people and conquer the native people. And they did it as Roman Catholics. This is before the um, Protestant Reformation. And they, um, in some ways, they justified it as missions, but in, in, in a lot of different ways, it was more of a conquest and taking over the land and, and capturing the people and enslaving the people. And like say for example in the i think the, the big example is the island of hispaniola where there there was something like a native population of around 200,000 people and they all died they were either worked to death or um starved or um they were just mistreated harshly and there was diseases and that sort of thing and so they needed more slaves to work the land in the island of hispaniola and that's when they started going to Africa. And it really was the case that um, just economically, it was a lot easier to grab the natives and enslave the natives because you didn't have to transport them across the sea. The problem is the natives started dying, especially of diseases, but also of harsh treatment. And there just weren't enough natives to do what they needed to do. And so that's why they started to um, import slaves from Africa. But all of that was happening under the Catholic banner, under the Catholic watch before Martin Luther arrived on the scene, before Protestants started to show up in the Americas. Um, so that's why that this framing, this magical framing of just, you know, well, let's, let's just isolate to, and, and it's, not, uh, it's not just, well, there were some rogue Catholics that, that did this of their own accord. Um, so, uh, here, I'm just reading. Uh, Pope Alexander was approached already on May 3rd, 1493, and he issued two bulls on the same day, 
in both of which he extended identical favors, permissions, etc., granted to the monarch of per Portugal and the monarch of Spain. And it was to reduce the persons in the Americas to perpetual slavery, right? So this isn't just, you know, some rogue uh, Catholics that uh, that started to enslave the native people and essentially conquer the land, take it and, and enslave the people. It was the Pope himself that was endorsing this, and um, they were under. Now, I have to admit, there were some good Roman Catholic priests who came over. There's no question about it. That the, there were some that were, I would say, they really believed, you know, they were doing God's will and, and that sort of thing, and they were trying to help the native people. Um, I think, uh, well, who is it, Bartomeu um, uh, de las Casas wrote a whole book on the mistreatment of the um, enslaved people. So, you know, you can't throw everybody, you can't, you, when you make these generalizations, it's dangerous, so you can't throw them all under the same bus. But, um, but in general, the Roman Catholic Church was behind and supported the conquest and enslavement of all the native peoples in America. And it was highly, uh, so it's, 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 it's highly um, slanted to just start with um, the American involvement in the slave trade. Uh, and just, so let's, let's just put, uh, you know, block out whatever the, the, the Roman Catholics did and just focus on what the Protestants did. Um, that, that's quite problematic from my standpoint. I, I would tend to agree with uh, the, this being a problematic idea. You, as you said, 1492 is Columbus' initial landing in, I think Hispaniola was one of the places he landed on his first trip. It's, uh, he, this, Initial conquest of the New World was accompanied, as you said, by slavery of the indigenous people. And the Protestant first colony, the first Protestant colony in the New World is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In 1630, 140 years later, uh, this is not, you know, the idea that this, the New World slavery uh, was somehow, is somehow the Protestants' fault as the primary instigators or anything like that is ridiculous. None of that is to, uh, condone or defend what it was being done in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to the extent that it had slavery. It's not the most famous aspect of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, certainly, but to the extent that they did have it, this isn't a defense of that or anything like this. What I'm saying is it's ridiculous to try to put this all on Bible only uh, when for 130 years, or no, sorry, 140 years nearly, there had already been a Catholic presence in the New World, Roman Catholic presence in the New World, that was not Bible only. The Jesuits who were in the New World, whether they were kindly towards the natives or whether they were hostile to the natives, the, they were not Protestants. They were not, uh, at least there's no evidence that we have that any of them were Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura existed before, but it wasn't the dominant tradition in Western Roman Catholicism before Luther, and it wasn't even, like uh, we pointed out just a minute ago, it wasn't even part of Luther's 95 Theses. On top of, you know, somebody might say, well, uh, you know, this is not really on the Roman Catholics because the Aztec Empire had slavery before they got here, which 
you know, if someone wants to make that argument, make the argument. But again, the Aztecs are not Bible only people either. They did, as far as we know, they didn't have any access to the Bible in this time. And to blame their slavery on Bible only positions is ridiculous. And to say that, that the Roman Catholics are entitled to do to the uh, indigenous peoples the same as the Aztecs were doing, you know, that's, that's just to say that there's not a moral, that this is not a matter of absolute morality. If you're going to take that tack, if you're going to try to make that argument, you're, you're just saying there's no real moral answer on this question. And that flies in the face of this being a problem with Bible only. You know, if it's, if it's just a moral relativity and whatever, you know, whatever's the prevailing pattern here goes, then Bible only or not Bible only, you, you have the same result. So this idea of trying to pin this on this practice that's going on for over a century before the Protestants show up in any power. There were Protestant missionaries early on to the New World, but the, the Protestants showing up with any significant power is the full century at later. And with the British Empire there, that's a, a huge jump. As, as you pointed out, the, uh, there was an endorsement of slavery of indigenous people in the New World. There was also a previous endorsement by Pope Nicholas V in his bull Romanus Pontifex of the African slave trade before the new the uh, entry into the, the New World. Before in this age of uh, colonization, it started early. The, you know, exploration started before the New World was discovered. The New World was discovered sort of accidentally, as a hopefully a faster way to get to India. But there, there were, there was already a transatlantic slavery. Transatlantic meaning that they, in this case, not that they went from the old world to the new world, but that they went from Africa through the Atlantic up to Spain and Portugal. Initially, it was Portugal. King Alfonso got in that bull I just mentioned was given the, the exclusive uh, right to do this. But he was given the right, and here's the wording that says: it says that. Uh, to capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ wherever, wheresoever placed, and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Uh, and that's uh, a, a legitimate translation of the Latin original. So this is not, uh, you know, Nicholas V coming before Luther, and this is, you know, 60 years before the 95 theses he's not suffering from an early case of bible only ism that's not what's going on here and the idea that it is is just nonsense that's not that's not the uh that's not what's going on and it's also kind of nonsense to suggest that this isn't an issue that had confronted christianity for a long time uh saint patrick is famous for being the kind of patron saint of ireland and, you know, St. Patrick's Day today is celebrated with drunkenness and all kinds of nonsense. But St. Patrick was a missionary to Ireland who originally came to Ireland by being kidnapped and enslaved by Irish pirates. He was actually, you know, originally Welsh. He was kidnapped and enslaved by Irish pirates. He escaped. He returned as a missionary later and, and successfully engaged in mission work in Ireland then. This is not an endorsement. Again, not an endorsement of slavery, just because something good came out of it for Ireland, that, that they enslaved this Welsh boy, and then he came back later as a missionary and converted Ireland, uh, with you know not necessarily all by himself, obviously with the Holy Spirit's assistance, but 
the point is, slavery was a thing that was existing before the Protestant Reformation. It was existing in Europe. The feudal system in Europe, which the Pope was a part of, was uh, a, a kind of slavery. It's not the same racial slavery that we have in the Americas. And I guess they may get into that in a little bit in, in the video, but keep in mind, the when when Pope Nicholas V is talking about how King Alfonso is going to go and subdue all the Saracens and pagans whatsoever, what he has in mind are African Africans who are you know Muslim Africans that he's uh, going to capture and enslave and bring as slaves back to Europe. That, that's the plan, back to Portugal. So. Uh, you know, the, the idea that this is all on Protestants, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated with the video so far, but maybe you can muster on, unless you have you want to add or subtract anything from what I just said. Um, we, I have more to say, but why don't we just uh, yeah. address it as it comes up in the video. Okay. Yeah, it's just a very Protestant nation, just as a fact. I mean, not that there wasn't Catholics, but in general, uh, a very Protestant nation and one that was built out of, you know, the wars of religion and all of that, that whole mess. In right, Europe, right, right. And so what do we do? So, um, well, you start, let's jump to the slave trade, right? 1619, we've got slaves uh, sold in the British colonies. Well, this gave the Christians pause there, of course. They're like, well, should we? be buying and selling people it seems like there's you know i'm a little i'm a little skeptical i'm a little uncomfortable I'm a little with this uncomfortable yeah. what are we, on the other hand uh you know it's making me some money so okay so right off the bat he sees he acknowledges that america was a protestant nation or mostly a protestant nation in its founding well what does the declaration of independence say right god created uh, all men equal Right, and that he endows them with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right, so if he's acknowledging that, he should at least acknowledge that the principle which ends up undermining slavery across the across the world um, is acknowledged first in writing in the formation of this Protestant nation. I don't know why he doesn't see that what america did now granted the problem continued and we had to fight a horrific civil war over it and it's it, it, horrific practices continued no doubt about it but the principle was there from the get-go it the seed was planted right from the very beginning i don't know why he doesn't see that i'm not sure i'm not sure why he's he's jumping around a bit right he there's this, the formation of America as a country is 1700s. It's not 1619. 1619, where, what American colony was there? And, he, and the idea that he's phrasing this like, oh, in 1619, this issue came up and Christians finally had to face it. No, of course not. That's not when the first time when Christians had to face the issue of slavery in general, buying and selling other people. That, that buying and selling other people is something they've been dealing with for centuries before that. Not... The, the issue of the African slave trade in the New World, maybe new for British colonies you know, at that time, maybe that's true. But 
that's a much more nuanced point than this broad hand-waving thing he's saying. And, you know, in terms of you know, the, the American colonies, Maryland is the famous uh, example of one of the colonies that was in fact a Catholic colony. I don't recall if there's any other of the colonies that was explicitly a Catholic colony. Uh, but the, uh, I think, actually, I just don't know. I think most of the rest were, were some kind of Protestant. Uh, Pennsylvania, obviously, famously, Rhode Island had its own separatist uh, start, not, not Roman Catholic for sure. And Pennsylvania had this kind of Quaker uh, connection, which is broadly Protestant. It's not not exactly the same as the like the Anglicans in Virginia or the uh, Puritans in New England. So there's there's a lot of variety by the seventeen by the late seventeen hundreds when the Declaration of Independence is signed. And if that's where he's trying to pin it to is that this American spirit that kind of comes out as one as this sense of being a country as opposed to just being thirteen colonies that are connected to Mother Britain. Uh, that, anyway, he's, he's jumping around a lot. And uh, it is frustrating to make it sound like there's that the, the argument that they're faced with is this is making me some money. Uh, not, not the least because seldom do we see this as being that the people who are arguing about it are the people who are making money by trading in slaves. This not the... Uh, this, it's not so much the slave traders that we see involved in this argument until, of course, very famously in Britain, uh, there's a, a famous former slave trader who uh, comes back to fight the slave trade in England and leads Protestant England to become the first nation to abolish slavery, uh, <laughs> despite being Protestant. So uh, I don't know, do you have more to continue this time? or? Um, so I guess on the issue of money, I mean, the the economics are obvious, right? So it, it was cheaper to enslave the natives when the supply ran out, then they had to start transporting from Africa. Even in Africa, they did, they weren't taking people from West Africa or South. They were, they were taking people, uh, I'm sorry, they were, um, they were taking people from West Africa, not East Africa or South Africa. Um, and the reason why is because West Africa is closer, you know, so there's less transportation costs, less food costs. So there's there's no question that in the slave trade, economics was a huge driving factor in that it benefited, you know, whole nations um, from from the wealth that they developed from the colonies, both from the land and from the uh, work of the slaves. So I see that aspect. I mean, I. I think I understand your specific point of, well, were the slave traders themselves the ones asking the theological questions on slavery? No, probably not, um, except for the exceptional cases like Isaac Watts and, and things like that. But uh, um, yeah, so, but I think your bigger point, I agree with you, which is, you know, 1619, yeah, that's when, um, when African slaves started to show up on, um, what is now the United States soil. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess that's that's why he chose that specific date, but that is um, pretty far from the 
uh, founding of the United States of America, I suppose. So I, I, I get your I get your overall point that you're making. But you know, the whole thing is just an exercise in um, framing it so that um, you know the the problems of the Roman Catholic Church are just out of view, and we isolate just on what happened on the, the Protestant side. If you if you try to do the same analysis in uh, in what's now Mexico, it won't work at all. <laughs> so, what is the justification there, right? Anyways, uh, but let's uh, yeah, we can keep rolling. Okay, and I think just as a point of clarification, I believe you meant John Newton as the uh, hymn writer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So is there some way, is there some way to justify it? Well, from a Catholic, let me just, from a Catholic perspective, this had been, although the, certainly there was Catholic slave traders, I mean, yeah, those boats, that was probably stolen from, I think it was St. John the Baptist was the church, or was the boat that got those uh, first slaves were taken from. So it's not that Catholics weren't doing the slave trading, but the official announcements of the church were very much clear, like you will be excommunicated if you continue in this. Yeah. So the So it always comes down to when he says the official pronouncements, which ones and why do they contradict each other, especially if you have this infallible interpretation of scripture, how come they keep contradicting each other? Right. I mean, so that's the thing. Hey, look, um, it's one thing to say, hey, hey, Roman Catholics have the same problems that Protestants do. And I think that's part of the response. But th I think the main thing is god's word is clear and that we're supposed to love our neighbors and we're supposed to treat others like we want to be treated and that sort of thing people break those rules right and that's true whether you're a roman catholic or a protestant so i don't think anyone's here to justify anything that's happened uh, that was wrong we should acknowledge the problems of the past and do our best to um with the holy spirit's leading to do better um but to say that there's a principal problem with sola scriptura is the issue here and it's it's um very odd that he doesn't see that the, he has the same problems in on his own side and you know what um if those bulls contradict the different bulls um, I think that's that highlights the uh, problem on the Roman Catholic side in terms of, you know, hey, if you if you guys are claiming that scripture isn't clear, try to figure out what tradition is, you know, go through all the fathers and all the bulls by all the different popes and figure and figure that out. You know, that's unclear. And then, um, you know deal 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 with those contradictions and if you want to say oh well no it's it's only ex cathedra statements well was this you know anti-slavery uh common an ex cathedra statement or not and you probably can't answer that or you just have to say no in which case what's to stop the next book from coming out and saying yay slavery is good you know let's let's kick it right you know let's start start it back up again you don't have that assurance as a Roman Catholic, so I, I, um, I'm this this argument just isn't isn't cutting it for me at all. 
I also would love them to be more specific. I understand he's an author of some kind. I have not read his book. Maybe his book gives us the specifics of what he means. But if he's, let's say he's, if he's referring to the Urban the Eighth, who is a pope who died in the 1600s, uh, he, the date of his death was 1644. Yeah, if, if that's the pope he has in mind, because that's one who, who said that you can get an excommunic excommunication for enslaving indigenous peoples. Not for slave trading, not with the, not African slave trading, but enslavement of indigenous peoples in the New World. He's the one who put that uh, excommunication in place. And as you said, not an ex cathedra pronouncement on the topic such that someone can't, can't disagree, or nor is it the official church position. I, again, maybe there's some other source that he's aware of. But how can you have an official church position, an unequivocal official church position, that there's no slave trading during this hundred years before uh, Urban the Eighth, uh, that you can't do slave trading only for Urban the Eighth to have to say it again and make it an excommunicable offense, if if indeed that was the case. So I, I don't know what he's referring to, and I do I have a lot of questions about it. I, I suspect he's referring to this. Urban the Eighth in the 1600s, finally getting around to saying no more enslavement of the indigenous peoples in the New World, and that, that was 16. So that his capable uh, commissum nobis is dated 1638. So that's even after the Massachusetts Bay Colony is established, not long after, but it is after that they finally get around to saying that this uh, South American natives can't be enslaved. So, uh, of course, he also, uh, a few years before that, had banned the use of tobacco in public places with excommunication. So you know, just because he bans something under threat of excommunication doesn't mean it's a defeated statement that tobacco is evil or something like that. It's just, it's just a law of the church. And that was repealed 100 years later. And in principle, that was Benedict the Thirteenth who repealed the tobacco ban a hundred years later. But the uh, uh, sorry, the, the use of tobacco in holy places, maybe not everywhere, but in holy places, it was prohibited at that time. So anyway, the bottom line is this: uh, from my standpoint, the idea that this is somehow the the official church position against slavery. And that this was just a real easy answer for Catholics because they have this papal system in place is a little bit uh, ridiculous. <laughs> not not the least because of the po you know, points we just raised about the Pope's uh, setting up this the slave trade with the Spaniards and the uh, Portuguese having their own ability to do the enslavement in the first place. The fact that 100 years later they just changed their mind and you know that's it's great. You know, I, I don't I don't think that the enslavement of the new world was a good thing. I'm just saying I'm not I'm certainly not saying the older way was better. Let's go back to the old way. I'm just saying that it's ridiculous to put this on Sola Scriptura at all. It has it has nothing to do with Sola Scriptura. It's just a, it's an attempt to make a low blow at, at Protestant Christianity because of Americans' familiarity with the American experience, which was a, filled with unpleasantness to put it mildly and just just to even say just unpleasantness is to euphemize it so 
the bottom line is this is an attempt to try to focus on the American experience because of the Protestant roots of America while ignoring the rest of the new world. As you just said, I think you pointed Mexico as an example. Where's this big Protestant influence in Mexico? And uh, you know, why is it that in Brazil, slavery isn't outlawed until after the American Civil War? And the reason isn't because Catholics had it all together and that you know Brazil was just this rebel youth. It's, I mean, Brazil may well have been rebellious and the Vatican may well have been trying to push for the end of slavery in the 1800s, centuries later, <laughs> but but no, this is not a uh, this is not a solo scriptura problem that we're faced with here. But let's shall we continue? I'm sure we find more faults before we finish this short video. We're, this is an eight minute video. We're taking it very slowly. The the official position of the church was unequivocal: no slave trading. This will get you sent to hell. But the Puritans, the Protestants of America, didn't listen to that. So what are we going to do as Protestant Americans? Well, very quickly, they started to relook at Scripture to support this. And so you would look at uh, passages like uh, the curse of Ham, Noah's son. And this has been a... So this the phrase curse of Ham is not from Scripture. Uh, the phrase is not from Scripture. Ham was cursed in his son Canaan. But yeah, this, this passage is sometimes used by people to justify African slavery, specifically African slavery. Anyway, I don't know if you want to have anything else about the curse of Ham. Um, no, um, we can go on. Has a long tradition in America of an explanation for why we can degrade uh, the African men and women because they are the descendants of Ham, who was the cursed son of Noah, and the therefore they were actually meant by God to be in slavery, and this continued to get more and more elaborate. Like not only is slavery uh, their lot in life according to the decree of God, as we can read in Scripture, but it's actually good for them to be in this state of servitude so that they can be drawn closer. Like at one point, um, you had a, a sort of pharisaical approach to the slaves where, well, are they really human? Like some people would say. So before we get into the human factor, uh, on, the, on the preceding point about this claim, this claim that the Bible justified it, this is an argument that's only relevant to the African slave trade. This is why this particular argument didn't come up before when, it, in your, when people were being enslaved back and forth in Europe, or nor did it have any particular relevance, as far as I'm aware, to the enslavement of the indigenous peoples, because they're not, it, the indigenous people were not associated with Ham, but the people of Africa were associated with Ham in the public mind. I don't know if there's any actual, uh, I mean, I, I believe Kush was one of the sons, uh, not Ham, he wasn't Canaan, obviously, but who's the one who was actually cursed. But I think there were some other of his sons that are associated with North African places. Uh, so the idea is some of, of the children of Ham went to Africa, and then this is now being used Centuries later, uh, not centuries, I mean millennia later, later than the curse, 
to justify this idea that there should be perpetual enslavement of African peoples. And I, I would just say that this, the idea that there's a biblical or exegetical basis for that argument is ridiculous. I, there, I don't know who he is thinking is making this argument, when they're making the argument, but the bottom line is it's exegetically indefensible. So <laughs> I, I have, uh, okay, so I'll just share some personal experience. So um, my, my first year of college, I went to Bob Jones University and I had to check a box, you know, what is my race? And they had a rule about you couldn't date outside your race. So when I checked Hispanic, I wasn't allowed to date white people or black people. I only could date Hispanic people at Bob Jones University. Um, the and in their sermons, yeah, they would they would talk about this curse of Ham. Look, the I think the 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 thing is, you know, people will do bad things, right? And they'll they'll sin, and then, especially when there's a lot of money involved, um, they will try to justify their sins in any way, shape, or form. They will reach for any straw that they can, um, rather than repent and uh, turn to Christ and that is true of people, right? It is not true of just white Protestant people. That is true of everybody. That's true of me, you, anyone that's listening. And we have that nature and we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And he's the only solution that we have. And so um, that the the I don't think there should be any level of justification for what's gone on in the past and um you know th those sorts of things but um you it we uh protestants are not the only ones to do bad things cover up their bad things and even try to use scripture or tradition to cover up their bad stuff and just continue in it that's the that's the issue with the argument so I mean, I, I do agree I, uh, that that's the, the important issue. I, th I think also, though, I mean, I'm not, I certainly don't disagree that uh, there's a lot, there was a lot of use of this curse in what's commonly called fundamentalistic uh, Christianity, especially uh, in opposition to the civil, you know, the civil war opposition and subsequent to the civil war through the 60s, 70s. Bob Jones was probably one of the last uh, universities to have some kind of segregated thing. And they've themselves already done away with that uh, as well. I don't know specifically about the dating rule. I think I'm pretty sure that they got rid of the dating rule as well now. But uh, I, I, I yeah, kind of... My experience was in 96. Yeah. I think, yeah, 1996. Sorry, I didn't mean to suggest you went there in the 70s or something. <laughs> but my, uh, my point was that uh, it, it, it became a tradition in fundamentalism to rely on this. And, and in some cases, in a way that he is very tinged with racist thought. Not, I, not be, it's not based on the strength of the exegesis for it. It's just, it became a tradition that, oh yeah, these people are the, the children of Ham and they're therefore under the curse of Ham. 
but without looking at the text. And we could look at the text, but I don't know if it makes sense to do it right now. But the curse is he's cursed in Canaan. And Canaan indeed was the one who's going to be the slaves to the people of Israel and who did indeed get wiped out. And that, that curse on Canaan was fulfilled in the conquest of Canaan and perhaps in some additional uh, wars in, in that area. But the bottom line is, no, this is it's not biblically correct. And, you know, the a solution to an error in biblical interpretation is the right interpretation of Scripture. It's not, therefore, we need a pope to answer this. On top of which, I, I don't know to what extent this argument in the in there, there wasn't a huge roman catholic presence in the u.s by the 1860s that i'm aware of i'm not saying there wasn't any there was i mean as i pointed out maryland had been a catholic leaning colony by the 17 by the mid 1700s i think it was a catholic minority colony uh, but it nevertheless it had some catholic roots there were roman catholics in the new world in the 1800s there in in the in the america american colonies in the uh 1700s and then in the newly formed america in the 1800s but i i don't recall it being that they they were able to just say well our our pope said no no slavery and therefore you guys are wrong the the problem i, I don't even know whether the I, I couldn't, I checked to see if the, the uh, Vatican website has some explanation about the curse of Ham. I did a, a quick search on the word curse, on the phrase curse of Ham on the Vatican website to see what the official church position was on that. And there's nothing, zero hits. And, and that's not surprising because scriptural exegesis isn't the strong point of the Roman Catholic Church to be, to be blunt about it. That's not their strong point. And this whole thing that this is because of Bible alone that we have the problem is just garbage. It's not that there was some problem that the scriptures are hard to interpret, and that's the issue. The issue may be uh, underlying this things like, uh, you know, for this, you know, for South Carolina after the Civil War, there may be a lot of racial animosity. There may have been racial animosity before the Civil War as well. Uh, there may have been a desire to preserve the status quo, which is a powerful influence that people have to come to the conclusions they think will favor that result, which could lead people to make wrong interpretations of scripture. But it's not the fault. These problems that people come to are not the fault of Sola Scriptura or of Bible alone as the system. And the, the proof of that is, you know, as we said, this is, a, this is also happening in Mexico at the same time. And it's happening not because of Sola Scriptura in Mexico. And it's not, and it's happening in Brazil, even longer than in the United States. And it's not happening there because of Bible alone or Sola Scriptura. And, and it's happening there despite that being a heavily Catholic country. There's hardly a country in the New World that could be more Catholic than Mexico or than Brazil. These are very Catholic countries. They're not, it's not like some kind of divided thing where it's, you know, 50% Catholic and 50% Protestant, or even 75-25. It's essentially 100%. There is some, I'm sure there's some Protestant, you know, tiny Protestant minority in those two countries in that time. But no, this is, you know, the idea of pinning this again on Sola Scriptura. I, I don't, I feel like we can't let them get away with this kind of thing. Uh, it, it just really, it's, it's utterly ridiculous.
Uh, and then the, the next part they're going to get into here, let me put it back into the screen. The next part is going to be this question about the humanity of people. Uh, Say, well, do we have to love one another? You know, like love your neighbor is sort of like the whole love your neighbor thing. Well, who's my neighbor? And you're like, well, are they really human? Do we have to give them human dignity? So you would argue, well, no, we don't have to because they are not human. Others said, well, no, they're human. So how are we going to get around that? Well, they're under the curse of Ham. Well, maybe they're not under the curse of Ham, but is there some other scriptural passage that we can use to support uh, the slave trade? And they would go to... Um, uh, elaborate um, issues of like government, for example. Well, they're servants, and so they should obey the government and stay uh, in a state of servitude. Like from St. Uh, Paul. Uh, Romans, from 12, yeah, yeah, Romans 12, right? So on, on the humanity issue, I know less about how Roman Catholics interacted with the slaves. I think you pointed out that there was some Jesuit attempts to evangelize the enslaved indigenous peoples. I believe that you had mentioned that. Maybe, maybe I misheard you. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, um, um, is that echo gone? I don't hear now. Maybe you just, just can you just switch it to the two of us? All right, here I'll do that. Hang on. So, hear that for a second. Oh no, it didn't. Okay, that should fix the X. I, I, I muted the other thing. Anyways, um, yeah, so, okay. Wherever the Spanish mission was set up, oftentimes there was a fort set up too. Now, why why was there a fort set up? That's because there were native people there that didn't think that they, those people should be there, that they didn't think the Spaniards should be there. So that happened all along you know, California and Texas and in Mexico and that sort of thing. So um, the the native people felt invaded. They, they felt that their lands were being taken and that their people were being enslaved and that sort of thing. And so that's why they fought back. Now, like um, I've studied San Antonio specifically and hey, look, there were some Roman Catholic uh, priests there, I think they were Dominican, that were true believers in the sense of they really thought they were doing what was right, what was God's will, and they really cared about people. They really cared about the natives, they really cared about the other Spaniards and that sort of thing. But they were the exception. Most of the people that were, that were there were there to make a quick buck, you know, to grab, grab the land, grab the slaves, grab the resources, um, you know, in, in, in Mexico they had, well, they had the Keens, right, the, the fifth. So a fifth of everything that seized from the uh, from the natives was sent back to the king of of Spain. Um, so <laughs> it, it's it was the the two missions were coincided, right? Like there was there was a mission to evangelize the natives. I'm not saying that there wasn't, and I'm not saying that it wasn't a very beneficial thing in some way, shape, or form. But there was also, I mean, at least the name Christ was, was taught to the natives anyways. But um, along with that was a conquest, um, uh, an enslavement. There's no, and there's no way of getting around the, both the official church position and the church ethos behind the whole thing. They, they, were, they were united. They were just, we're going to take it over. The 
Yeah. The the there was a part in there about the humanity of these and and the efforts to evangelize these people demonstrates on an important level that the at least in those cases the people involved are treating these although we view you know today slavery is viewed as an affront to human dignity and and a violation of human rights and the implication that people will take is if you're saying it's okay to have slavery of such and such people you're saying it's because they're not human and i get that argument but i'm saying that as to this specific group of the indigenous people who are getting enslaved, if you're also evangelizing them, it's because you do think they're human, you do think they need to hear the gospel, and in especially you know, even when there's forced baptisms, which I don't endorse at all, forced baptisms, but the when there's uh, forced baptisms, that's uh, still an indication that these people are being considered to be human beings. So. I understand it's kind of popular to to raise the argument well slavery means that you're saying the person's not a human being i know there probably are people who say that in 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 the americas there are people who say those kind of things that dehumanize the especially the african slaves although you know even in the americas there are i, I want to say at least apache slaves and there are other slaves as well in uh, among the native american indigenous peoples who were enslaved by Europeans. Yeah, but the I, I think you and I looked up before the this, but it was it wasn't it wasn't like just a handful, it was millions of people. Uh, oh right. Yeah. So of uh, the so they the there there's wide rest estimates because the records weren't real good, but um, between 2 million and 5.2 million of native uh, native peoples were enslaved, and then 12.5 million of uh, of Africans uh, that were enslaved. So yeah, so large <laughs> large numbers. And um, so the the natives were either outright enslaved or they had peonage systems and stuff like that, which essentially was slavery. In, under a nicer name. And this is, you know, and to say that in some cases there was some evangelism is not a defense. I, it, of course, evangelism is good, but it doesn't, you know, just because you do one good thing. If I were to kidnap somebody and then I was to preach the gospel to them, preaching the gospel to them is great. And if they yeah, leads them to believing and trusting in Christ, it was for their best. That doesn't mean kidnapping them is okay. <laughs> that doesn't make it okay just because I have some other, you know, some other thing that's a good intention. Uh, that I then fulfill, that doesn't make it okay to kidnap people. So just, you know, taking that, it's very important to kind of divide that uh, away, even if the, uh, it was in, for the spiritual benefit of some of the people, that doesn't make it right, and that wouldn't justify it. And uh, as, as I said, some of the people, some people may have tried to argue that these uh Africans, especially I think the Africans, but maybe maybe also the North American Indians, uh, were not truly human or somehow subhuman. Is is certainly popular within the scope of people who are accepting the then prevalent views of evolution. By that time that that became popular, it became popular to suggest that Africans were simply kind of like monkeys. 
this is a you know horrible thing. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from it comes from rejection of the Bible. But so there are those kinds of comments made, and then there are ones that that actually say what I think this author had just can't come to, which was that somehow slavery is necessary for the African people. They have to have this. And sadly, one of the uh, one Presbyterian minister from the 1800s, I'm not going to mention his name, just not just to, because he doesn't deserve to have his name mentioned in this context, uh, had made an argument, something to the effect of, well, he, he did a, a crime statistics study and the people of African ancestry in Philadelphia committed X amount of crimes per capita, and the ones in Richmond, Virginia, committed X number of crimes per capita. And guess what? The ones in Philadelphia, where everybody's free, were much worse than the ones in Richmond, where everyone was enslaved, or nearly everyone was enslaved. So his view is uh, enslaving these Africans leads them to be better people, better for society, and all this kind of stuff. That's, uh, you know, I want to say it should be kind of obviously racist in, in, in its mentality. And his, his comments were basically fundamentally racist. He just thought that these were people who were subhuman in some way. He did preach the gospel to them. He did have, you know, he did try to evangelize them. But at the same time, he was treating them as lesser and in a way that was based on racial prejudice. And I, whether it was motivated by animus or something else, it was is not acceptable. I don't praise him in any way or defend him in any way for that. And that did exist. It wasn't the result, I think, of of sola scriptura that that existed. That it wasn't a problem that the Bible needed to be better interpreted in order to overcome this. Go ahead. Right. And the opposite isn't true either. It's not like slavery ended in, let's say, Mexico because the Pope issued a, a papal bull and said, hey, let's stop slavery. No, I mean, Mexico won its independence, and when it became a new nation, that's when it ended slavery, and I guess in 1821. Um, um, but um, it, it, that had nothing to do with the theology of the... It, it wasn't because the, the Pope all of a sudden changed his mind and said, oh, you know, let's switch it up and let's free all this, you know, let's make it um, official church teaching that uh, we should free the slaves, and all of a sudden everything changes, and you know, the shackles are, are loosed or something like that. So it's on both sides, it's both on the initiation and on the ending. It, um, um, Roman Catholicism is not the answer. Yeah. I think we met, I'm, oh, uh, there's some comment about Paul and Paul's teaching uh, that they mentioned. I, I, I don't know. We don't need to get into the specific. I mean, we can. So, just, I, I would just say in general, look, you know, people make they they will stretch the truth to justify what they have done, and that's true of Protestants, Catholics, and non-Christian. Like, it's just that that's part of the curse of the fall, and you know, God is the only answer. Amen. So all of these really started to embed very early on in the American experiment a biblical justification for slavery in particular. And then the, the racism, I think, I feel like kind of built out of that. Now this, you're like, well, okay, didn't we get over that? But realize that this was no small issue. Like we fought a war over this. 
And one of the reasons, a good Protestant historian, uh, by the way, Mark Knoll, who's one of the great uh, historians of Protestantism in America, very explicitly says, and also people like Paul Johnson, um, that if we did not, on both sides of the Civil War, think that we were on God's side, right? Like you, you look at the, the writings of the uh, evangelical preachers in the South at the time. We are fighting against the satanic, godless attack on Scripture. Like we are fighting against the enemies of God when we defend slavery. We are fighting on behalf of the Bible and God itself. And so you had this holy war attitude, yeah. <laughs> which was reflected a little less maybe, but still to some degree from the north. I mean, they're still motivated. It's not like we had a huge atheist population. I mean, everybody's basically Bible believers at the time, right? Yeah. And so you would justify the north saying, well, no, we are on the side of God. Love your neighbor. <laughs> These are human beings. We shouldn't be enslaving them. The um, the motive, the passion, it, it was not just a war of economics, but a war over interpretation of Scripture. And if you didn't have that scriptural backing. So, again, I mean, do you think Cortez and, um, you know, but Bartolomeo de Casas had the same opinion <laughs> about slavery? I mean, like, what is it? Uh, Yes, some people misuse the Bible. Thankfully, some people read the Bible more faithfully. But that's true whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. Come on, guys. And, and I do, I mean, I agree that Mark Knoll is a significant historian. He has a book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, and he does make that contention that there were Christian, there were professing Christians on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line and that the uh, the ones in the north thought that they had God on their side and the ones in the south thought they had God on their side. Although in the south, I think it may have been presented less in terms of uh, God's in favor of slavery and presented more in terms of God's in, free, you know, in favor of our independence from the federal, uh, federal government. But regardless of the exact details, and I, I haven't read Noel's book, so I'm not going to try to comment on something I haven't read. Uh, I'll just say that there, although there definitely are theological aspects to it, again, keep in mind, a religious war or a war where both sides are Christians is certainly sad in the American experience, but it's not new to the American experience either. <laughs> we have uh, a long series of, of uh, wars in Europe under a papal system in the late uh, it, during the medieval period, in which both sides think that they have God on their side in the war, then the fact is that a lot of you know if people are Christians and they're willing to go to war, they think it, God is on their side, and you know whether well, I suppose we can we we can point out that in the American war the north was supported by the protestant england and the south was supported by roman catholic france so i mean if, again if you're going to make this into a theological war and you're going to point that out which side was the catholic side in the civil war it wasn't the north that that wasn't the side that the, the catholic uh, the, pap the papal armies didn't come and support either side directly, but the only the, the support from the, on the south was from 
Roman Catholic country, France. Now, I understand at that point there's some heavily, uh, there's the French Revolution issues going on, and there's a lot of atheism in France. And honestly speaking, there's a lot of atheism in America too, in, at the time of the, uh, not only by the time of the uh, American Civil War, but even before in the time of the Revolutionary War. They have people like Jefferson crossing out everything supernatural in his Bible. And, and the, you know, to say that this, uh, that these attitudes, and I think he's focusing on the attitudes that Mark Knoll brought, brings out, which are attitudes of the second half of the 19th century. Uh, those attitudes are not there entirely from the beginning. They develop over time. And when you have something like an American Civil War, people are going to dig their heels in. And I'm, without getting into any discussions of any specific current events, there are current events today where we've seen people who were not an expert in a particular field of scientific study who now are arguing as though they were. And that's true on both sides of this hot topic that everyone has been talking about for the last two years. So people, what happened is at some point, a lot of people formed a political divide on the subject, dug their heels in. And actually we see the same kind of thing of you know people on one side arguing that God is on their side because they think that their position is one favored by God and people on the other side thinking God's on their side. And that's, that's pretty normal. You, you actually see that in, uh, you, you do see that the Pope has an announcement about which position is his position on this subject. But you also see that on this particular subject, maybe the uh, North American Catholics don't actually agree with the Pope. On, this, on that particular subject. Many of them were digging their heels in on the other side of the issue from the one the Pope ended up taking. And so this idea that, you know, again, that this is all coming down to Sola Scriptura when it comes to slavery because the American Civil War was fought in a Protestant nation. You know, I, I wish that it hadn't been fought. I wish that we could have uh, resolved the problems in the country faster, more, uh, uh, more appropriately, and we hadn't had us. Civil War. It cost half a million American lives. Uh, the result uh, of the you know improved society in the U.S. I'm I'm glad we have an improved society from that standpoint. I'm not I'm not happy about killing half a million people to do it. And I don't. Th but again, I don't think that the deaths of half a million people are at the hands of Sola Scriptura, because because that's just not an accurate way of looking at the situation. Now, in fairness to Mexico, by this time, Mexico had fully outlawed slavery and there were uh, escaped slaves who could make it to Mexico or who felt comfortable in, uh, in that uh, approach. They were, uh, there was some attempted flight to Mexico to escape slavery by the 1860s, because I think it was in, I want to say Mexico and independence was like 1827 or so, and then... Eight. Yeah, eighteen twenty-one. Okay. Yeah, but but you're right. Yeah, there were there were some that made it down to to Mexico, to, you know, to Florida, to Texas. Yeah. Florida and Texas were part of. Uh, I'm just kidding around. Uh, I, I know Florida was part of Mexico. I just. Yeah. So okay. So Texas is yeah. Texas is well. We we could go <laughs> on. So. Uh, Okay, so... Part of the uh, American Civil War, it wasn't. Uh, 
part of Mexico officially anymore because they had declared independence and then joined sort of. Uh, there yeah, was, a, there so, was a, some dispute, remaining dispute maybe. So. so there were slaves in Texas. And so when Mexico declared the end of slavery, Texas broke off from Mexico, sort of, half broke off from Texas, and um, then ultimately was annexed by America, and there was a war fought. And anyways, we could go, we could go on and on, but um, um, not the point. The, anyways, we can get back to uh, back to the video if you want to. Sure, I, we're almost. Uh, I say we're almost done. We have two minutes left, and we're going along at about half an hour per minute or something like that. But we'll get through it. Let's see. Unmute. There we go. Sorry you wouldn't have had the passion and the, uh, on both sides. And so uh, I believe I, I go with Mark Knoll. I mean, obviously, you know, people can debate, but I go with Mark Knoll that it actually um, made that situation worse. And certainly, even to this day, um, implemented a I mean, you can look at script, you can look at passages, uh, sermons preached in the 1970s on the curse of Ham to support yeah. school segregation. It's not like this went away. <laughs> right, right. And so, yeah, that, I think that instilled in America this scriptural support for what I see as a grave evil. And, and then uh, this is, becomes a self-perpetuating thing because then the child is taught that, about this and this is, becomes their pattern of the way they interpret scripture. That's called the tradition. Sorry. Yeah, that when the children are taught something from from their youth, even if it's not taught by scripture, and they kind of adopt it as their own, that's that's what we call tradition. That did, does happen. It's not good when it happens when the tradition is a bad tradition, like racism, which is a human tradition and does get passed down. But it, that doesn't make it the fault of sola scriptura. It's not the scripture's fault when people have when human traditions are imposed on scripture. And that is what's happening. And as you, Dan, you pointed out, this was still being justified by Bob Jones in the 90s, not just the 70s. Uh, now, Bob Jones may have been one of the last holdouts. I don't know. But the, uh, no, it, it hasn't gone away completely. And I bet there might be uh, people who end up hearing this video who, who still think that way, who still think about this curse of hand. Maybe we need a separate video to debunk that mis, uh, misunderstanding of scripture or explained that it's not the curse of Ham was in Canaan and that that was fulfilled in, in the people of Canaan. But you know, whether we get down to that level of response or not, this is uh, the idea that the, the curse of Ham issue, which is an issue of biblical interpretation, is one thing. And it's an important thing when it comes to combating racism towards African people, because that's how it's applied. Nobody's saying that uh, it's okay for Patrick to be enslaved by Irish pirates because of the curse of Ham that applies to Welshmen. Nobody says that. It, this is a one of these arguments that's uniquely used to justify African slavery, and perhaps it's uniquely used in American fundamentalism in the 20th century, or maybe the late 19th century in uh, mainstream Protestant views there, and then more in the fundamentalists in the in the 20th century, and maybe now in the 21st. I don't know. They they may use that to justify treating African people in an unequal way. 
And that's shameful if people are doing that. It still, I don't know of anyone, personally, I don't know of anyone who's still doing it, but they might be, especially in our own lifetime, they were doing that down in uh, at Bob Jones. So you know, even if they ended their policies, I'm, I'm sure that the professors who were in favor or the administrators who were in favor of it uh, probably may not have changed their mind just because the school changed its policies. So, you know, there may still be people out there with this wrong idea, but it's not Sola Scriptura's fault. <laughs> and it's not a more general response to slavery. I mean, yes, you can't use this one to justify the indigenous slavery, but you're, you're focused, they're, they're, he's focusing so narrowly on this one point about the American experience of slavery of African people in order to try to attack Sola Scriptura, that he's missing the problem that the Pope did endorse the enslavement of African people starting in the 1400s and kind of came around to things not because of a correct understanding of scripture or filling this vital role of being the interpreter of scripture, but for other reasons. So, uh, yeah. This tradition is powerful, though. This this idea that, you know, a human tradition, something you're handed down, can become the lens through which you interpret scripture is definitely true. Yeah, I mean, he, he's right to point out that it was a problem, but it's not a unique problem to to Protestants. And the solution is not a pope because they just haven't and didn't solve it. And, um, you know, this the solution is people repenting of their sins in their hearts and knowing that they're personally going to answer to God. Would you say that part of the solution when there's a human tradition that's been handed down for a while, is to go back and check scripture and see if those traditions are right or wrong. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that's that, that's the only sure word we have of what Christ and the apostles taught. Um, so that's where we must go. And the scriptures aren't unclear when it says to love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you know have, like it's not <laughs> this isn't um yeah what what people have in the past and still need to repent of is is fairly straightforwardly taught in scripture and it is something they focused on, but it is really important. Back to our if I can, I think I can. Uh, but I, I suppose that at root, then what you're saying is that that uh, scripture is is not a self-interpreting document. Somebody's got to interpret it. And there's always going, if we say there's no authority competent to, to interpret it, a church namely, then there's always going to be the opportunity to say, well, what the Bible really teaches is transgenderism. What the Bible really teaches is uh, slavery or what the Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. What, what? 
the church really teaches is transgenderism, what the church really teaches is slavery. I mean, look, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, really taught slavery. They really did. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, I th This video is driving me up the wall. It, it really is. Uh, I better, uh, I'm going to let you uh, let you handle this one. Thanks. So I also have a, a number of arguments. Now, part of the reservation is and is that the general being wrong. The idea that the scripture is uh, not clear that all uh, every ethnicity of human ha shares one blood coming from Adam is crystal clear. The, the fact that the Bible teaches everybody came from Adam, everyone came from Noah, is is crystal clear in Scripture. That there's not there's not two different races of human beings in Scripture. There's one race of human being in Scripture. Races may be a useful sociological concept for whatever purposes. Maybe very handy for the critical race theory folks of today to use, and it may be a useful way of looking at the American experience. I don't know. I'm not, that's not my field to, to get into. I, I don't think that it's very helpful. I think it does more harm than good to focus on those those things, but it is what it is. But what what is it, what is not some, but what scripture cannot be uh, forced to do is to say that one race is inferior to another race according to scripture or in the eyes of God or something like that. No. Now, I understand, again, there will be arguments that people will try to make to the contrary, that somehow scripture is anti-Semitic because there's parts of scripture that blame the Jews for the death of Jesus. I understand people make that argument. And guess what? <laughs> again, they're going to make that argument, but then they have to deal with, the if the Catholic Answers guys want to try to make that argument, they're going to have to deal with the popes who signed on to the interpretations that now they reject. They First they believe them, then they reject them. And it's the same as the slavery issue. First they have slaves, popes, there are popes who have slaves, and then now there's popes who say slavery is wrong. Grave sin, as he said. A horrible evil. But before, they had them, they endorsed it, they, they gave the rights to doing it to the king of Portugal or the kings of Portugal and Spain. Uh, and then at the end of this, now they're going to try to push it back on scripture not being a good enough interpreter of itself. But uh, doing that, they throw themselves against the very uh, the church that they claim to be a, uh, a part of. They claim to be a part of a church that goes back to Christ, that, that the apostles founded. They claim that's what their church is. But if it is, they should be following the teachings of the church that Christ founded, the teachings that were that are found in Scripture, and the teachings of the, the early church fathers who tell us that, like Epiphanius of Salamis, he says, uh, he says, for God has come and the divine scriptures explain all things to us clearly, for there's nothing in them difficult or obscure. Uh, Chrysostom says that, uh, one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, Tarry not, I entreat, for another to teach thee, thou hast the oracles of God. No man teach, uh, teaches you as they do. 
For he indeed often, is, uh, well, there's more he says, then he goes on, he goes, this is the cause of all evils, the not knowing the scriptures. We go into battle without arms, and how ought we to come off safe? Well contented should we be if we can be safe with them, let alone without them. And then again, in, in uh, one of his homilies, one of his you know, sermons on the second epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonians, he says, what do I come, uh, come in for, you say, if not to hear someone discoursing? This is the ruin and destruction of all. For what need of a person to discourse? This necessity arises from our sloth. Wherefore, any necessity for a homily, all things are clear and open that are in the divine scriptures. The necessary things are all plain. But because you are hearers for pleasure's sake, for that reason also you seek these things. In other words, Chrysostom is saying, yeah, you like coming and hearing my sermons. And he's a famous, famous maker of sermons in, that, in the 5th century, Chrysostom is. And he's a great orator. I don't agree with every single point he made, but this point I do. This, this point is, Scripture is clear, and the problem is not with Scripture. Scripture does interpret itself. But the problem isn't Scripture, that it doesn't interpret itself well enough. The problem is us, our sin, our laziness, our prejudice. We want, they somewhat nailed it on this. There are people who want to support slavery and they find that in scripture. But it's not a problem with scripture, it's a problem with them. It's a problem with these human beings. There's their sin in their hearts or their pride or whatever else it is. Sometimes it comes down to human tradition as, as he said. Sometimes they just taught this as a kid, they just accept it, they don't dig into it. Now, will I go to the yeah. extreme? Go ahead. Oh, so, yeah, I was just gonna interject. So let's say they, the Roman Catholic position is right, and that the scriptures are just unclear about slavery. Look, the the the, the problem with that, and I, no one likes these slippery slope arguments. But the enemies of Christ in general aren't going to listen to the Roman Catholics with their finely tuned distinctions. They're going to start labeling the Bible hate speech, and on the Catholic principles, what is their principle response going to be? Right. So if the scripture just isn't clear enough on slavery, and maybe it's teaching slavery, maybe it's not teaching slavery, we just don't know, then how are they going to justify that, this, that the Bible isn't hate speech, right? Now, thank God that hasn't happened in America yet, but what kind of world are we setting up for our kids here? Um, man, so they really, really need to be careful with these types of arguments, man. That's just, just, it, um, well... Okay, I've said my piece. Yeah, no, it plays it plays into the progressives' hand as well. The progressives who want to say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, maybe the gospels sort of record what Jesus said," and then Paul, crazy old Paul, he goes off and does his own thing that's misogynistic, and he's racist. He calls the Cretans what he calls the Cretans, and you know, they're, they're all you know, Paul has all these problems, and they just want to throw out God's word, treat it as though it's just a human writing that it's full of mistakes and errors. And that's not the way. That's not the Christian response to the to the scriptures. We can't do that. But uh, I wouldn't go. I would say to some extent, uh, both Epiphanius of Salamis and Chrysostom, both in the same century, are being a little bit extreme and saying that absolutely everything is, in scripture is clear. There, there are some things that are harder to be understood, and scripture tells us that. I mean, P Peter tells us that about Paul's epistles that there's some things in them that are hard to understand. But the point of that is not that everything in scripture is inscrutable and you can't you just can't figure it out and you need some church to tell you what does it mean. 
The point is that there are some things that are difficult. And the solution that Peter provides to that, some things that, that are difficult to understand, what does he do when he knows he's going to die soon? He mentions this in his epistle. I'm going to die soon. He's not going to be there anymore. Does he say, so listen to Linus, listen to Anacletus or Cletus, one of these uh, successors that I'm naming who's going to come after me? Does he turn to Timothy? Paul, Paul's go-to guy is Timothy. When Paul's in chains, he has Timothy write letters with him. Scripture, some of the books of Scripture are by Paul and Timothy. Timothy's his messenger to the Philippians and to others. Uh, but does he? Does Peter say, nope, Timothy is our, is our new guy. Once all the apostles are gone, look at Timothy. Follow Timothy. We need this consistent chain of apostles and, and the successors of the apostles. Rely on them. No, what does he do? He writes a a book of the Bible it says, when I'm gone, I want you to, these things to be in your remembrance. So that's why I'm writing this. <laughs> and and the you know if you're going to treat Peter as your first uh, as your first pope, which he he's not. But if you want to treat him like that, at least listen to what he wrote, read what he wrote. And what he wrote was, when I'm gone, I want these things to be in your memory. That's why it's being that's why he wrote the letter he wrote. So no, it's uh, it, the Bible does interpret itself, and it interprets itself well, and the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. It's not just some book. I had ran into somebody, a Roman Catholic, who's, who he made a comment to the effect of suggesting that the books of the Bible are just some random correspondence that happened to be addressing whatever issues just happened to be there in the first century. As though they, we're, we're just kind of, uh, we found some letters of the apostles and we're treating them like finding the rookie Mickey Mantle card and putting it on the shelf because it's kind of a cool artifact of some famous people. No, the scriptures are inspired by God and are profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's one of the purposes of scripture is instruction in righteousness. And you're going to tell me that that's the purpose of scripture, but it can't fulfill its purpose without the church to do that. that it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not saying there's no value in the church. There's a great value in the church and there's great value in human instruction from scripture, of course. Those are great, highly valuable, but the idea that you need an infallible interpreter to help out the infallible self-interpretation of Scripture is just a mistake. And uh, and <laughs> what makes this more frustrating for me is, is it didn't solve the problem. <laughs> the very problem they're trying to bring up of slavery, it didn't solve it. It didn't solve it in the first century. It didn't solve it in the second century. It didn't solve it in the third century. Now, maybe it sol solved it somewhat in the first century in the sense that the uh, not not that the Catholic Church was around then, but but Christianity had a big influence against slavery in the early centuries because of Christian the clear Christian teaching on the the brotherly love that all Christians should have for each other, regardless of our status in society. So masters and we're supposed to treat slaves like Christian brothers, not as something beneath them. So the idea that, that you know, so Christianity erodes at some of these prejudices and other things that are behind slavery. But, uh, but the idea that, that, you know, the, let's say we, we date, uh, Roman Catholicism start to Aquinas. Do you think there was an end of slavery in the 1300s? No. In the 1400s? Definitely not. If anything, it was institutionalized in the 1400s. In the 1500s, did it go away? No. In the 1600s? No. Centuries go by. There's clearly popes, and they're clearly not solving this problem. 
So, uh, you know, the idea that the problem is Sola Scriptura is just, uh, I don't know, to me it's unreasonable. Should we finish this off? I think there's a little bit left. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you, if you, if you want, just run the rest of it and then we can come, uh, make some final comments. Um, you may need to unmute them. Although maybe it's healthier not to, but it, um, <laughs> but go ahead and unmute them. So I I don't know where the audio cuts off, but this is part that uh, it, it begins with this: we can always justify what we want to do using the Bible. That's not true. The Bible doesn't justify anything you want. <laughs> People try may try to use the Bible that way, but it's not. That's that isn't true about the Bible. Always justify what we want to do using the Bible. You can always justify anything. And that's the thing. Like, it's not just the fact that we can justify our doctrinal positions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's that we justify our actions and our attitudes that quite possibly are sinful. That's really where I feel like the rubber hits the road. I mean, we all know that, yeah, you, it doesn't speak for itself. Scripture has to be interpreted. Any writing has to be interpreted. But it is the ethical implications of that that really cause a lot of problems. And Luther, I mean, Luther himself saw this. You read what Luther said about the morality of the church after he's like, I can't believe all the immoral people that have, have resulted from their terrible interpretation of the text. I mean, everybody should be interpreting the Bible the way I am. Yeah. Right. He was quite derogatory, but it was a it was the ethical issue that he was mostly concerned about. And that's the end of the substance of their discussion. I will stop sharing, or just altogether remove that. Here we go. Concluding remarks. Yeah, I think if from my side, the concluding remark. If I were sitting, uh, you know, just talking with the, these guys, I, I'd just ask them, you know, point blank, you know, hey, look, do you think the Bible is a racist document? And what are they going to say? They're going to either say yes or no, right? Right. Or they're going to say, well, it's just not clear enough. But, uh, you know, if they if they say that it's just not clear enough, that's the that is the whole issue. And that's that's where, you know, they they better watch out because that means the Bible itself is going to be under attack um, from non-Christian elements. So I, I think they need to be really, really careful with these types of arguments. So. You know, just just summing up, the Roman Catholic uh, Church itself issued several bulls, um, leading to slavery of the native people, and it, uh, you know, so they just arbitrarily framed it the way they did to ex exclude that from their analysis. But both Catholics and Protestants have done horrible things, including racist things and including slavery. And everyone just needs to own up to the fact that that's happened, that's part of the past, and we need to um, work out that in our own hearts, uh, you know, wh wherever we are, and the Holy Spirit is working on us, and we need to submit and and obey. Um, but as far as the idea that, well, the scripture just isn't 
clear enough to settle these issues. Yeah, it is. It, you know, we are supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to treat people the way we're, we want to be treated. And we just need to obey God in those things. And that's, uh, that, uh, it's, it's just as straightforward as that. And both sides have transgressed that point. So I think that I would, uh, I just would encourage the, these guys, frankly, to drop this argument full stop um, it's, it's just going to, um, just, it, it's, it's just isolating, you know, uh, fr framing the issue just exactly the way you want to frame it. That's the, that's just bad guy stuff. I mean, I, I just hope that they reconsider these types of arguments. I, I agree with what you just, what you just said. I would add to it that this, this argument against scripture that against scripture being its own interpreter. It's true, of course, that you can't just read syllables and have no one and uh, without understanding what they mean, going through the epistemic process of interpretation. But scripture does interpret itself. And by reading scripture, we understand what scripture means. <clears throat> Irenaeus was confronted with the same problem. And he talks about it in Against Heresies, book three, uh, he says, referring to heretics of his time, Gnostic heretics, if I recall correctly, Valentinians, perhaps, Marcians, the Marcionites, those of Cerinthus. He says, when, however, they are conf confuted from the scriptures, they turn around and accuse the same scriptures as if they were not correct, nor of authority, and that they are ambiguous and that the truth cannot be extracted from them by those who are ignorant of tradition. For, they allege, that the truth was not delivered by means of written documents, but viva voce. Therefore, also Paul declares, but we speak wisdom among those that are perfect, but not the wisdom of the world. So this idea of trying to turn scripture, and especially trying to pick on uh, Paul, or some of the more you know, nuanced and theological aspects of Paul in trying to accuse the scriptures of being ambiguous and saying they could be used for supporting transgenderism or slavery or anything. They can be used to support or justify anything according to these guys from Catholic Answers. Irenaeus says, no, that's, that's not the case. Irenaeus says that Scripture that this is the argument of heretics, and that's what these men, these men are heretics. They're attacking scripture. They are uh, whether they're saved or not saved. If they're saved, it's despite this heresy, not not because of it. But the this attack on scripture on scripture is an attack that goes to one of the central pr principles that, that we say in the creeds. This is not uh, the, the idea that scripture is God's word and has objective meaning is and that can't therefore can't be just used to justify anything unless what they mean is that it can be misused and twisted to justify anything and of course if they mean that then they've wasted their time in, in making this kind of argument but they you know they need to they really need to you know, if they're listening to this and i hope they, are, they at some point they will they need to really take serious stock of their position because it is on this point the same as the principles of the Gnostic heretics that wanted to reject 
scripture and impose tradition on top of it. And that's just exactly the wrong way to interpret scripture. It's not, doesn't need a, an extra scriptural body of tradition to understand it. It speaks clearly and there's a reason that people flee from the scriptures and transgenderism, we can talk about another time perhaps, but it, it doesn't stand up to scriptural scrutiny. And I would say, you know, if, if there's one, you know, scripture is pretty clear against racism. It's even more clear against transgenderism. So kind of, I don't know, I uh, guess I'll leave it at that for now uh, in terms of my final thoughts. I don't know, I guess we can wrap it up with our, you know, as usual, if you have comments, questions, let us know. Uh, I'll, I'll mute myself so you can wrap it up formally, Dan. Oh, no, it's a good discussion. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. It's obviously a touchy sub the subject. Anyone that's out there that's listening to this, I, you know, I just urge you, you pray about it um, and, and search the scriptures here for yourself. But uh, Turden fan, I appreciate your thoughts and uh, God be with you. And also with you.